0: George, oh no. I do have a Buddhist uh, Dharma name um Kimachari, which means walking in peace, uh Kimachari today. Um <clears throat> do was very kind to ask me to explain or to talk to you how I came to be here and um, what my sort of Buddhist history was. Actually starts very early um, in England. There's no separation of uh, church and state, so we actually used to have Church of England lessons and uh, junior high. In the first year, we learned gospel. In the second year, we had, uh, I think his name was Comrade Bennett, a um, Marxist teacher who was not going to teach religion under any circumstances, so he taught comparative religion. And when he got the Buddhism... Uh, just seemed to make a lot of sense to me and you know. I then started reading quite a bit. Gave that up by the time I ended high school and didn't really come into contact with Buddhism again until I was travelling in Southeast Asia. And I'd always wanted to go to Borobudur it just seemed like a fascinating place. And as soon as I got there it was quite shocking, you know, really transformative to me to see the Buddha and just how peaceful and The place was just so tranquil and that was before it was a tourist site, really. And um, I remember sitting quietly on the top, meditating. I'd already learned to meditate before that, but not in a Buddhist context. So sitting on Borobudur, um, meditating was a very profound experience for me. And so then when I travelled to Singapore, still in my... Uh, Mid 20s, I uh, went to an English bookstore and everybody else with me grabbed Newsweek or The Economist. I actually grabbed Mad Magazine because I fancied a laugh and the uh, uh, Lotus Sutra. A strange mixture, probably says <laughs> quite a lot about me. <laughs> um, so, anyway, I read the Lotus Sutra over and over. Then, travelling from Singapore, on the train I went north to Thailand and joined the meditation group in uh, Wat Bawani in Bangkok so that was my first sort of formal teaching as such there. So from Bangkok I was planning to go to Japan to learn karate and I thought I'd have a three-day stopover in Hong Kong because my aunt had lived there in the 50s and I thought, well, I'm go and have a look as I'm going by. So I stopped in Hong Kong for three days, stopover that lasted eight and a half years, <laughs> <laughs> which probably says something else about me too. And uh, a couple of days after I arrived in um, Hong Kong, I saw a advertisement for a Buddhist book, Uh, Exhibition, So I thought, well, well, I like the Lotus Sutras, and I'll go along and see what else they got there. And there was a Western monk there. Great surprise to me. And I went up and introduced myself and asked if he spoke English, and he, he said he did, although he was German. And I said, I was, you know, just come from Bangkok, and I was really interested in this Buddhist stuff. So he gave me a pile of books, and he said... Read these and contact me when you finish them. So after about three weeks, I contacted him. And he said, come, come over. And he said, did you read all the books? I said, yes. He says, what's this point? What does that mean? And I realised I was getting an oral exam on all, <laughs> on all all, six books. And at the end of it, he said, yes, you really did read them. Very good. Here's another pile. <laughs> And so after that, I came back. It took a bit longer to read the second pile. And uh, again, I had an exam, and then he asked me about what the precepts meant and stuff. And he said, Would I like to work for him? And I said, Yeah, yeah, I really would. And so that was why I stayed eight years as I worked there with him for months. He, he was uh, saving Buddhist sutra that were being destroyed in China at the time and republishing them and translating them. So I worked for the Hong Kong Buddhist Printing Press from um, 82 to no, nearly 90. Uh, it was very nice. I sat with a monk every day and when we weren't doing mindful work, I could ask him lots of questions. And he was a very famous monk. So lots and lots of people came to visit him and I, got to meet many famous teachers, although I never spoke to them because I had to sit in the back, quiet, without fidgeting and listen. So a very Asian way of training. Um, He taught me vipassana first, and after about a year of vipassana training, he decided that I should move on to samatha, calming training. Probably because I was fidget, fidgeting too much. I've always fidget, fidgeted, and he hated fidgeting. Probably more to do with his German stuff than anything else. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, after Samatar, I kept asking about Zen because I'd been always interested in Zen. And uh, he introduced me to uh, a friend of his, an even more austere, or. Stru- uh, Morris, dear, um monk who was uh, Chinese and um, was heir to all five schools of Zen Buddhism. Well, yeah, Chan as it is there, yeah. and so I, we used to go over and drink tea with him. He was very quiet man. Um, He'd ask me sort of one question occasionally and I'd give one answer and we'd drink tea and that was that. And uh, I asked him some of the standard questions. One I really remember asking him was, um, uh, tear up the sutra, forget the sutra. There's nothing to be learnt in them. And I asked him that and he said, well... Before you can forget them, you really need to learn them. (laughs) So if you know them all off by heart, then you can forget them. And so um, another time I asked him, um, I I read it's better if you meet the Buddha to kill the Buddha. And he said, well, rather than reading about Zen, it's much better to practice it. (laughs) That was his only answer to that. He was very much like that. But uh, after a while, he he invited me to go on a uh, retreat in his monastery, which I did, stayed there for about three months. Um, I was given the task of hand-copying large sections of sutra out. He particularly liked the um, Lotus Sutra, the, uh, the Wisdom Sutra, the Heart Sutra. He uh, gave me you have it out there. Comes uh, um large discourse on Prajnaparamita in five thousand slokas. So, <clears throat> and again, I would get you know questioned on these, and I was the only Western. In fact, I was the only English speaker in the place, so I didn't. It was pretty well a silent retreat, not by choice. But uh, it was very, very interesting and I enjoyed the solitude a lot. Um, Still after that went back to the printing press and worked there and then eventually got to Japan, Went, stayed a couple of temples in Japan, came back to Hong Kong. And he invited me to do the range retreat in another temple, which was a very intense practice, actually. starts at 4 a.m. and uh, finished either at 10 or midnight and consisted of 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, 60 minutes, 30 minutes, then a break of meditation. We'd have a little bit of kinning in between, but we did... Basically pyramids, if you're used to physical training. Um, for a long time, every day um, in silence, and at the end of that was a big um, a Buddhist holiday in Hong Kong, and the whole went from being like 30 of us to 1,500 of us, and people were sat all around outside and everywhere. So. Again I was the only Westerner there. So my much of my training has been in the in the East and it's quite different because it's not an alternative in the East. It's the mainstream religion. It's very much tied in at high levels. Not quite the Church of England, but not far off of it. Uh, certainly in Japan, the shoguns and the samurai all practiced then <clears throat> and was, was completely expected to be conversant with every aspect of it. So it, any sense of alternativeness uh, just didn't exist there. And because I had mostly Asian and Asian-inspired teachers, it consisted of a lot of listening and not much questioning. So after... Years of training. Now, um, my wife got a job in the states, so we moved to the states. And I didn't find any teachers that reminded me of any of my old teachers, and just I didn't feel particularly welcome. Um, didn't know how to behave there, and I just gave up going to American Zen or Western Zen things. And I, I actually sampled quite a few of them and even tried some Tibetan stuff for a while and none of it <clears throat> resonated with me. So for the next 22 years I meditated at home <laughs> and uh, still read all my sutras and had all my interest, but virtually didn't see anyone. Occasionally went back Asia to see my old teachers unfortunately they all died it was just the way the world is Um, as I got older they got very old and then died and uh, I saw one of my -um, co-students and she said what you've been doing and I said sitting at home for 22 years and she said well that's not acceptable so, get yourself out and start <laughs> meeting people, <laughs> Yeah, you know, in the Buddhist sense, you know, I've always been social. Um, so, um, here I turned up here and, uh, I said to Maido, I'll come and, uh, sit with you for a while and, uh. Having come to sit, I actually can't find a good reason not to come to sit, so I'm still here. Mm-hmm. Um, do I have any plan for my sitting? No. Uh, do I enjoy sitting? Mo- mostly. I um, can't say it's greatly pleasurable. Uh, but I do it. I just do it because it's there to be done. And that's been pretty well all my practice, is I haven't had a lot of plans for it. I um, just sort of go along with it. Uh, when I first started meditating, I used to have lots of visions and nimiters, if you know that word, uh, marks of concentration, lights and clouds and stuff. And I used to think that was really neat. <coughs> but... Having practiced uh, meditation masters who just said, Well, yeah, forget that. No, that doesn't mean anything. Um, Why are you paying attention to that when I've given you this command to work on? And so uh, I pretty well learned to just let those things arise, go, don't pay any attention to them. Um, I was given the five and my dharma name and the five um, precepts in 82, I think. And pretty well kept those, make a good effort anyway. Uh, At times I've kept eight, but I really like music, so I don't stick to the eight too often. Um, 10, when I'm in the monasteries doing retreat, Um, quite mindful. Uh, I like mindfulness practice. Uh, I practice mostly Rinzai, um, koan practice. I've uh, been given three major koans to work on. When I had koans to work on, I wasn't allowed to read anything about the koans um, because and I remember once giving La Fashi, the old monk, uh, it means a uh, La Fashi, uh, a poem. And he just... Oh, God. Just wave me away. <laughs> so, that was... Yeah, no, it was... Uh, so, the stuff you read about in books doesn't always work. Um, he, but... I remember somewhere about 83, three, four, we were in a meditation group and I'm sitting quietly at the back, minding my own business, and uh, somebody said something, a question about the nature of sunyata emptiness, and he looked at me and he said, Mr. Chaplin would be better at answering that than me, and I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and that was my introduction to teaching, and I was just so surprised. I couldn't really say anything. And I said well when you experience sunyata there is no way of talking about it because all the words have gone too. Anyway. Well oh. <laughs> you know, I really didn't have a plan of what I was gonna say or anything, but everybody thought that was pretty good, so well, he didn't ask me to teach again for another year or so, so <laughs> I thought perhaps it wasn't so good, but he just never gave you any feedback on that stuff. It was. And I practiced karate. How are we going for time? You got laid <clears> out. <throat> so I practiced karate in the same time that I practiced uh, meditation for That's about 40 years now. And. Uh, it was much the same in karate. You know, the Asian masters would say, not there, there, and there. And you say, why? And they'd look at you like you were. Well, actually, I, I never did. I did see people ask them why. Um, they'd just walk away, because <laughs> I said so. Mm-hmm. And it was a very strict way of practicing. I started when I was teaching Karate and I've taught Karate much longer, Um, since the mid 80s I've been a Karate teacher. And uh, I started trying to teach like the Japanese had taught me and with Westerners it was like effort diminishing classes and people just disappearing. And when I started teaching lots of little kids, and most of them were Americans, and I could never get over the idea of being called coach. Everybody called me coach, which I didn't know was a term of respect at the time, not being American. But anyway, I said, no, I'm sensei. Yeah. Yes, coach. <laughs> so, um, but I realised to teach Westerners, you had to explain everything, and that's how I, I teach karate, is I explain why we do it, show, demonstrate. And I guess that's the proper way to teach um, Buddhism in America. I know Maido and I have spoken about Zen needs to be American Zen to be widely appreciated. It's, and strangely, as American culture has got into Asia, Um, Asian teaching doesn't work very well in Asia either the karate clubs are diminishing uh, the temples are shutting and people want to know why and discuss things Um, I would think for a young person that there's probably a great future in um, Buddhist Twitter I couldn't quite do it but daily Twitter Buddhist aphorisms or something. Um, Always through the history of Buddhism, the core teaching remains the same. The methods of teaching, the explanations uh, have been changed slightly to suit the audience. And I think that's an important thing that we all need to bear in mind. At the time of the Buddha, there was probably the only uh, the Dharma Pada the Af, uh, the aphorisms of the Buddha they were probably his own speech or recorded not too long afterwards and then there was the Pali canon that was developed then the Abhidharma and then the Wisdom canon and the Mahayana canon are uh, all based on the Teachings of the Buddha, but developing over time as the audience changes. So, I do much better questions than lecturing, so, I'm going to stop there.